Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. So this episode is definitely one of the episodes that's it's, it's kind of ironic. It's, it's like I've had enough time to know who this individual is. I know his values. He's given me people that you've already seen me interview. And now we finally have an opportunity to get on the same podcast at the same time. My man, Randy. So, you know, I like to give whoever I'm interviewing with a particular nickname. And his nickname is one that obviously he's earned. Right. So we're going to name him the giving boss. And that makes perfect sense for what we're about to talk about. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about you and what would you like to talk about today, Randy? Uh, dude, I'm fired up to be here. This is a long time coming. Um, honestly, what I'd love to just talk about is how people can start thinking bigger and going bigger so they can give bigger. That is my nature. That is everything I believe in is just how we can use our business principles to grow our businesses while simultaneously giving back and supporting others, which allows us to buy our happiness and create more good in the world and not feel guilty about making unlimited potential revenue. Mm, mm. So, I mean, with that, obviously, historically, that people, they start a business and they don't usually start a business with giving in mind. And I think that you started what you're doing right now with that as a principle. And I want you to kind of talk about your title. Like, what is a fractional CGO? Like, what, what, what does that stand for? Yeah, so I came up with this really cool concept called a fractional chief giving officer. And that stemmed from about six months ago, I ran a mastermind and I gave all the principles and keys to people on how they can start adding giving components into their businesses, the messaging, the marketing, how they can do it. I gave them ideas on how they can do it and I gave them the full blueprints. And then about six months after the mastermind, I followed up and asked everyone, who here has implemented this strategy in or added giving components to their businesses. And a lot of them hadn't actually implemented it yet. They still wanted to, and they still believed in it, but they didn't have the time, effort, or energy to be able to put it into their business. And so that's when I realized that it wasn't the fact that businesses didn't want to give back, is that they didn't know how and they didn't have the time. So mm -hmm. I talked to some of my friends who are fractional COOs or fractional CFOs, and I was like, this is so horrible. Like, how do you guys do it? And they shared a lot of the principles. And that's when I realized that I could create something this market hasn't seen yet, which is called a fractional chief giving officer because big, big corporations get a higher chief giving officers or they have people on their team to manage their giving initiatives or their outreach or their internal uh, volunteering opportunities. Well, what I've done is made that available. So I basically have coined the kind of term making strategic philanthropy available to all businesses by being a fractional chief giving officer. So I think obviously with that, there's multiple different facets and, and we're going to dive into that. I mean, I think one of the um, illustrations that I've seen on your social media profile was on one side of the coin, there's capitalism and the other side, there's like philanthropic. So I want you to kind of talk about that. And I think the illustration that I remember seeing, it was kind of set up like the money quadrant, right? So I want you to kind of break down that philosophy and, and, and how, how did you come up with that philosophy and how has that been working for you? Yeah, I got two things that I've loved talking about right now. One of them is a Venn diagram. So it's the easiest one to start with. Think about a Venn diagram. We have two circles. One's capitalism, one's philanthropy. As you start putting them together, the gray area in the middle is what I'm calling the go big to get big zone. We are taking capitalism and philanthropy and marrying it together. The next one is the four quadrant system where picture this in the bottom left quadrant is an unmotivated business. So that's a business that's not making money and not making any impact as we go higher in the quadrants. So on the top side of the quadrants, that's people that are making money. Those are people that are actually producing revenue in their businesses. So top left, you'll find a profitable business. That's where 90% of business owners live. They're profitable businesses as we, <coughs> sorry, as we scale, right? we have impact. So in the bottom right quadrant, we'll have a nonprofit business. So a company that's not making a lot of money, but they're making extreme amounts of impact. Well, in that top right quadrant, that's what we call a go big to give big business. That's a business that is making unlimited income potential. They are scaling as high as they can on the top side of the, on the image. 
so that they can make as much money as possible, but they're also scaling as far right as they can, where they're making as much impact as they can. And what you actually get is a diagonal line that shines through to the top right quadrant that basically says, hey, you can earn as much money as you want in this world, as long as you're simultaneously making impact along the side of it. And that's why I love speaking about how we can use capitalism to become business owners. You need capitalists in this world, but how we can use that with philanthropy and impact to not feel guilty about making as much money as we want. So, I mean, I, I think that all of this kind of stemmed from your, your original business, which happened to be in real estate. And I think in that one, you had a, an equation that was pretty similar, but you was talking about what, what would it look like to give $10 per door per month? So I want you to kind of talk about like, how did you come from like the real estate aspect of it? And when, when you came up with the $10 a month, you know, obviously you're talking about uh, multi-key units. How does that then convert into this $10 a month to give back? Yeah, that a lot of that stemmed from uh, being uh, labeled as a greedy capitalist in the real estate space, right? As real estate investors, a lot of us get labeled as greedy capitalists. Well, I wanted to be the opposite. I wanted to use my real estate to make an impact in this world. And so uh, my business partner and I were chatting and we decided that if we donated $10 per door per month, so take our five plex as an easy example that people can relate to, our five plex donates $50 per month to charity. So the more doors we were able to buy, the more impact we were able to make along the way. So as we added 20, 30, 40, 50 doors, our donations went up to 200, 300, 400, $500 a month. And that was just how we rationalized and felt good about buying more doors. And the more we were able to buy, the more we were able to give. And that's where the principle of go big to give big was founded, was that we realized that the bigger we went, the more we could give. We need to go big to give big. And so we started implementing that into everything that we touched along the way, where everything had a direct giving component and a direct relation to the revenue that we were producing. So, I mean, obviously on your website, talking about like these principles, there's one particular thing that I want you to kind of like dive into a little bit, and it was impact assessment and evaluation. So like, how does that work? You get a new client and are you looking at basically like how much revenue they're making and how much impact they're giving back? Kind of, can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah, a lot of it comes down to, um, it's such a, a hard metric to actually track because everyone has a different value of what they believe in giving. If you were say to go out and volunteer, how do you track that as a metric inside your business? If you were to donate 10% of revenue, how does that compare to someone that wants to donate $10 per door per month, where my revenue changes quite a bit depending on my expenses and my incomes and things like that. So it's very hard metric to track. So what we actually do is we go into businesses and we start finding out what impact they actually want to make in this world. And then from there, we start small. One of the biggest problems is so many people believe that they need to have a large scale donation to even start. Right. If I'm not donating a thousand, ten thousand, or a hundred thousand dollars, what's even the point? Right. So we actually go in and we assess where can we actually start small to get you start believing in the principles and the concepts of it, which for us was ten dollars per door per month. I had a duplex, right? So I was donating 20 bucks a month. That wasn't changing lives for anyone. But it was the concept we built in that as we scaled was able to do. So we'll go in, we'll assess all the revenues they make, where they're getting it from, and we'll find a small line item that we can attach a given component to. Once they start seeing and feeling how good it feels to make that donation and moving it into a separate account, no different than you pay tax accounts or you move money in your accounts to pay tax, we call it the giving tax, the tax you're happy to pay. I'm happy to move that money over to that account because I'm making impact with it. So we go in and we assess all their incomes, come up with the giving strategies that we can put into place based on what they have there, starting small, right? We're not talking about writing off $100,000 in donations in the first year, just building the principles and concepts around giving. And then, <laughs> sorry, as we scale that, that's where we'll actually start to see a lot more of the impact on the back end is once they've bought into the principle, because so many people need to have a proven metric along the way, that metric is happiness. The feeling you get when you give is undescribable. You can't track it. Now, when we talk about a metric of how much you donate, that's kind of a cool number. But the feeling you get is untrackable. We need people to feel that movement. And then from there, we scale the happiness feeling, and they can tell us how far they want to take the initiative in the giving. Mm. So I think that kind of plays into your statement about, you know, and the question, but it's also a statement, can money buy happiness? 
Yeah, it's one of my favorite questions in the world. And it's something I ask in the end of my podcast to all my guests. And the true question is, can more money bring you more happiness? Absolutely not. If I put more money in your bank today, I say you would probably, you'd probably feel a lot more safe and secure, but it's not going to bring you more happiness. But it's what you do with that money that allows you to go buy happiness. And this story stems from I went down to my buddy's orphanage in Mexico where they help sex traffic kids. And while we were down there, we said, what can we do to kind of support these little girls that have gone through some of the worst traumatic things in their life? And he says, man, they love ice cream. So we spent $50, five zero, and we went and bought a bunch of ice creams for these kids. And they were the happiest I've ever seen them. And it made me realize that for $50, I could buy myself happiness by providing some services to these kids, watching them eat ice cream after going what they've been through and being so happy for such a small investment for me made me realize that I can use money to buy my happiness. And I've done it over and over and over again to the point where I've created this concept now called your giving bank account, where every single person on this planet, doesn't matter who you are, can take $100 a month, move it into this bank account. And then you take that $100 a month and you go and buy yourself happiness. Now, how do you do that? A lot of different ways. This is the concept that I teach people. I take the 90 minutes it took for me to go out for dinner with my wife. And that 90 minutes, we had happiness. We didn't think about anything else and it cost us $100. In that same vein, we took that $100 and we went and bought a bunch of toys for an SBCA shelter and a bunch of treats. We went over to the SBCA, the SBCA shelter and we hung out and we played with the dogs. We fed them treats and we just loved on them for 90 minutes. Same 90 minutes, same $100. But my wife and I, we get to share that memory we had of serving and volunteering for weeks and months after we talk about it. We've never once talked about one of the dinners that we've gone out with for 90 minutes. So that's how we're able to start buying our happiness is using money that serves to do good and then using that to create memories of a lifetime by doing good with it. So just to kind of pull back a little bit, I mean, earlier on, you had talked about having the, the dual bank accounts, right? And obviously, the equation that you always hear is pay yourself first, right? And then obviously, you're talking about having a, another bank account for taxes, and you having a bank account for giving. Isn't giving pretty much like a tax item that someone can kind of reduce from their general taxes if they give a particular amount of money every year? Yeah. So oftentimes what we do is the reason why we create what we call it giving. So there was two different concepts there. The happiness bank account was the one that I just talked about the hundred dollars anyone can do. That can be private. That can be whatever. The giving account for your happiness or sorry, the giving tax from your business that, that we moved to. The reason why we created that is because it allows you to track how much you're actually giving for your accountant. So every month you go through, you find out how many products you sell and how much you're going to donate and X, Y, and Z and what it looks like. You move that to a separate bank account. What that allows you to do is that you can make the donation every month, every quarter, six months, or at the end of the year, you get to choose where that money goes and who it goes to. And it makes it a very seamless uh, spot for your accountant to know what is actually being donated to what charities. And you can actually go through and find it easy so it doesn't get blocked into all your other statements. So we're trying to make it as simple as possible for everyone because a lot of the reasons why people don't give is because um, a confused mind makes no decision. So when they try to think about how they want to donate, one of the things they think about is, well, where is my tax rate off going? How much do I get? What does it mean? It doesn't matter. Move it into a separate bank account. Let your accountants deal with what the actual uh, tax receipts are going to look like. And they will let you know at the end of the year, maybe you need to add to that. Maybe you can do a little bit more. And that's where you can make some of those decisions if you want to increase that at the end of the year to offset your taxes. Wow. Wow. I think probably one of the most impactful things that I've ever seen you state. And it's one of those things that like it should be on a T-shirt. Somebody should get a, a tattoo on their leg with this, this comment. Purpose gives brands permission to profit. Like that is such a profound statement. I want you to kind of unpack that. Because I mean, earlier on, we was leading up to this. But I really want you now that like the, the, the listener has a little bit more foreground to what we're talking about. Like, what does that statement really mean to you? Yeah. That it truly comes down to that stem of capitalism. Like we need capitalists in this world to survive. That's you need businesses to run. People need to make money so that they can hire people and grow and scale. But one of the things that I learned is that um, I wasn't motivated by making more money. What I was motivated by was making more impact. And what this gave me permission to do was to go make as much money as I could in this world, as long as I was doing good with it. 
So it gives brands permission to make more money if they're going to make more impact along the way, mm. right? Subconsciously, a lot of people have money mindset problems, right? If you're an entrepreneur, you've heard that before, right? You probably have some sort of money mindset problem where you grew up in a scarcity mindset or people that made money were bad people, things like that. What we're doing is changing that narrative. What if, SA, I gave you permission to double your income next year because you were going to do good with it? Hmm. And not saying directly proportional, but or not saying it's like, hey, if you make an extra $100,000, you need to give that away. But what I'm saying is, what if you made an extra $100,000 and you donated 20 of it next year and you walked away with an extra $80,000? Now you've made more money, but you also donated $20,000 that you weren't going to be able to do this year, hmm. right? So think about that. So now you're like, wow, I can actually go donate $20,000 and I'm going to get an extra paycheck on the other side. That's a pretty cool feeling. And now you can feel like you can make an impact. So it gives brands that ability to realize that they need to go make more money as long as they have the impact attached to it and they don't have to feel guilty about the money they're making in the money mindset equation. Mm-hmm. I think th- this is part of, of the podcast where I-, I think we should time travel back. And I think you and I have so many different commonalities, right? Like we're very passionate about what we do, how we do it. We can talk for days about what we're doing right now. But if you was to take back 20 years or go back 15 years, 30, you know, like just a time frame of going back in, we are probably completely different individuals to a certain extent, right? So I want to kind of talk about your crazier wild side versus like where you are passionate. How did you turn that energy to, to where it is right now? And it reminds me of this image that was on your Facebook page. And the, the, the tagline was something along the lines, broken nose, cracked ribs, and a minor concussion, right? I want like, what the hell happened? And, and again, I want you to kind of talk about those younger days and how that morphed you into where you are. Yeah. Um, I loved sports growing up. Sports were everything to me. And so I played soccer. I played baseball. I biked. I did a lot of things. And uh, it's the things that kept me out of trouble. You know, I, I grew up in what I didn't know at the time, but I know now is a lot of ADHD, uh, a lot of having to be distracted, a lot of looking for trouble if I wasn't entertained or my brain wasn't stimulated. And so sports were my outlet. And one of those sports was mountain biking. I was I would go sit for hours building jumps and building uh, ladders to ride across and cruising through the mountains. And as I uh, continued to progress as a rider in there, things got bigger, the jumps got bigger, the drops got bigger. And uh, it was actually kind of ironic is the week that I got my license so that I could drive myself, uh, I drove to one of my friend's house that had some dirt jumps and Unfortunately, I crashed on one of the dirt jumps and uh, ended up breaking my nose, breaking some ribs and uh, a concussion. And that was the day that I retired my bike because I got my license. I didn't need to uh, to pedal my ass around anymore. I could uh, I could now drive. And that was the uh, same time where I started working. And that was where I led into starting to get my job. And, and I grew up in a lower income, but not lower class family, as Tim's stories taught me to say, right? Not, not low class, but low income. And so I realized I had to start working very early on. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those principles that I had around sports and keeping me entertained was what I took into the business world, where I just loved the concept of working. I know I knew I had to work for everything that I wanted in life, but it was very easy for me to work because it kept me distracted. I, I could think very fast. I had a lot of energy. I had a lot of motivation. So I just took a lot of the principles that I applied in my early life of sports and brought it into the business world. So I give all the credit to the leadership skills, the teamwork ability, my ability to hustle and grind were directly attached to how hard I played sports where I was playing soccer three days a week and baseball and biking and school and everything. I never had a moment to relax. That's how I took it into the business as well. Mm. So, I mean, obviously with that comes with like highs and lows, right? You're talking about riding a bike, potentially that that was kind of like your, your creative outlet, but you like to travel as well. And I remember there was an actual clip and it was you and your brother and you guys were surfing in Hawaii, like in the early 2000s. So I want to kind of like talk about like the family aspect, like how does that play into you giving back? I mean, obviously I would think that would make your parents very proud, but you know, is that potentially a factor to what you're doing? Or you're just doing it because that's what you needed to do for yourself. Yeah, my family always instilled in me just some great principles and philosophies. You know, we went on a trip to, uh, and I and I share this in a way that you know my grandparents supported our trips. My parents never paid for a trip 
for us to go on. It was always our grandparents taking us as a family on a trip. And one of the things that my parents did is we went to Mexico probably when I was like 12, 13 years old. And um, we met one of the bartenders at the resort and he offered for us to go back to his house. And so at a young age, I went to this Mexican's family's house where there was no floor. It was just dirt. And they gave us a bunch of food, even though they didn't have a lot. And my parents kind of taught and trained me from those experiences, how lucky we were to even have what little we had, right? Mm -hmm. And so some of those traveling experiences, my parents didn't take it and teach me how to, uh, or treat it as like a complete vacation. They always showed me the principles of giving back and what we had. And my family for, for always, as much as I can remember, any chance they had to support somebody, even though they couldn't afford it, they did it. And that's a good example. One of my best friends grew up in a family where there was some alcoholism. And he oftentimes had to fend for himself to make food or feed himself in different areas. And my parents extended the invite to him to always come for dinner, open door policy. And he would show up at our house. My family didn't have the money to afford a bunch of more food or feed more people, but they realized that they could help this young guy. And eventually they went on to adopt him. So my best friend was actually adopted by my parents. Um, so they could co-sign for a lot of his stuff and brought him in. And um, just they're just those kinds of people that instilled that, that it's always about giving and serving others. And that's how we can find our happiness more than money. So that leads into the, a lot of the money principles I was taught. That money was not bad, but we didn't need it. We didn't need money to be happy. We could serve and find happiness. So, I mean, obviously, what's your focus on? I think some people will embrace it. Some people probably won't embrace it. So you're always trying to overcome certain hurdles, right? And I think one of the hurdles that you've done in life is you conquered 29,000 feet in 36 hours, right? That, that, that's a hell of a, an accomplishment equal to climbing Everest. So I want you to kind of talk about why do you kind of push your limits to a certain extent? Do pushing your limits help you to then push bigger to give more? Yeah, 100%. Um, my favorite challenge of all time. So I've always been a runner. Uh, I've always loved kind of fitness in the world. I did some CrossFit and I love challenge myself that way. But I heard a guy, uh, his name is Jesse Itzler. And he just talked about all these principles of how he loved using physical fitness to challenge himself to see what he was capable of. I got into a bit of the David Goggins and some of the other people. But what I loved about Jesse was he a lot of what he talked about the principles of marrying doing hard things in physical fitness and how that relates to your business and how it challenged you to do more physical things in fitness. I was going through a challenging time in my business. I didn't know the direction I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. And so I took it upon myself to say, why don't I do some really extreme fitness challenges to just see what I'm capable of, see if I get some mental clarity, find out what's on the other side of it. So I signed up for this really cool event called 29029 Everesting. And basically, you hike up a mountain and gondola down for the equivalent height of 29,029 feet or the height of Mount Everest. And so you have 36 hours to complete. And if uh, if people are watching the video, I got the, the award right behind me here. It reminds me every day of what it is. And I went into that challenge wanting to find a new level of um, thinking. And I, I just wanted to like find the pain cave, essentially, like a new way of finding out what I was capable of because I was stagnant in business, but I knew I could reset it by challenging my physical fitness. And so I went into that event and <clears throat> Jesse, it's one of the best motivational speakers I've ever heard on the planet. I've listened to them all across the board. He is hands down one of the best. Talked about emptying the tank and leaving it all on the mountain. And he said, when you leave everything out here and you play all out, that's what you'll get the most out of this weekend. Well, I hiked for, uh, we started at 6 a.m. It was about nine o'clock. So it's at 15 hours. And a lot of people were starting to duck off and go to bed. And they were starting to go to sleep because you had 36 hours to complete. So they would hike most of the day. They had a few laps left. They'll wake up in the morning and do it again. I said, I want to leave it all on the mountain. I didn't come here to sleep. I came out here to find out what I was capable of. So I hiked through the night by myself in the pitch black. And I completed in 23 hours. I finished, I think, third or fourth of 250 people because I went through the night. But it was in the middle of the night where I got a bunch of downloads and a bunch of ideas for how to expand and grow, go big to give big. And is literally what changed all my philosophies of who I was as a human and what I was capable of 
and where I wanted to go. So 29029 was the single greatest thing I ever did for my business, mm-hmm. for my mental health, for my for everything. And I've continued that on. I ended up running a marathon seven days after I got home with never running more than 10K in my life. Uh, so I did this marathon. It is 56 kilometers, which is uh, just over a marathon for those that are American. I don't know exactly what it is, like 22 kilometers or 22 miles, I think, for a marathon something like that. And so um, I hiked a marathon. And then seven days later, went and ran my first ever marathon with no background in running, no training, no nothing. And it was in those two challenges, where I had the biggest downloads of my life on how I was going to trajectorily change everything. And I've lived to that purpose to this day. So, I mean, obviously, that's more recent times. And obviously, there's always a climax in someone's journey and someone's story. And I think for yours, it was kind of like when you got your real sealed journeyman ticket to become an electrician. Like, I mean, that has nothing to do with what we talked about. <laughs> but it's kind of like that's, that's, that's kind of where you started coming out of school. So I want you to kind of talk about what was the climax or the hurdle or the, the, the point of breaking at that point in your life to then switch and then become more into real estate, which led you to where you are right now. Yeah, I was very fortunate to get started in, like I said, working very early, realizing that I had, if I wanted anything, I had to work for it. So at 16, I started to become an electrician. Uh, by the time I was 22, I was a, a red seal journey electrician here in Canada, or a master's electrician, as people might know it. And at 22, I had great leadership skills. I had a great mentor. I was running multi-million dollar job sites. I was running crews of people. By the time I was 24, 25, I was basically like, one of the top leads in the company. Me and my mentor were actually in conversations to buy my electrical contracting company. But every single day, that same mentor, my journeyman that took me under his wing, he would say to me, Randy, you have so much more potential than just being an electrician. Every single day. And I never understood why, right? I didn't understand what he saw in me. I was like, dude, I'm just climbing the ladder like anybody else is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. He encouraged me to buy my first house at 25. So I was very lucky about my first house at 25. And he said to me specifically, Randy, in 25 years, you'll have this thing paid off and you'll be able to retire at 50. And I was like, oh, looking at my parents, looking at my life, white picket fence, house dog, retired at 50. That sounds perfect, right? What everyone dreams of. Unfortunately, two weeks after he said that to me, after I bought my house, he passed away in a job site accident. So I went from living on one of the highest of highs to all of a sudden hitting some of the lowest of lows. And he was 42 years old when he passed away. So here was a 42 year old telling me how excited I should be about retiring at 50 when he didn't even make it to 50. That was, that was where it was. Now there's a turning factor here. I also lost my younger brother when I was three years old to sudden infant death. And so I learned early on at a young age that therapy was actually good for you. I learned about how to channel some of this stuff and uh, worked with my parents in, in a lot of that space. So when he passed away, I realized that I had two options in life. I could, woe is me, start getting into drugs and alcohol and ruin everything that I'd built to date. Or I could take this opportunity and say, what is the next lesson and how do I grow from this? Mm-hmm. So I got a therapist two days after he passed away and the therapist asked me, Randy, you need to go find something to take you away from the pain and trauma that you're feeling right now and kind of just, you know, give you something to focus on instead of the the pain that you're going through. And so I just Googled how to make a ton of money and never work again, right? I thought, you know what, if he passed away at 42, I'm going to make sure that I have enough money to retire and I'm going to retire my whole family so they never have to work again. And that's where I found real estate investing. And uh, I was very lucky um, that at 25, my parents said to me, Randy, go chase your dreams. Go chase your goals. We believe in you. You have no family, no kids, and you've got a house to fall back on. Worst case scenario, you can become a journeyman electrician making the same money you were, and you're light years ahead of a lot of people. So very fortunate my family believed in me. And I just went in all in on real estate investing. I spent what little money I had on credit cards and lines of credits to learn about real estate investing. I did some really cool math where I realized, hey, if I spent twenty dollars or $30,000 on education on how to go buy and flip a house, if I flipped one house, I'd make twenty dollars or $30,000. So why wouldn't I make that investment knowing that I was confident enough to flip that one house? And then after that, it becomes what I call an infinite return on investment on the education I learned. I spent twenty dollars or $30,000. I made twenty dollars or $30,000 back. But that that strategy I learned and the education I got becomes an infinite ROI for any more money I make in that industry. 
Mm-hmm. And that's just how I, my philosophy on life. And that's how I've continued to grow into where I am today. But that was the turning point for me was losing my best friend and Googling how to make money and finding real estate investing as a vehicle to go build wealth in and just not thinking twice about it and going all in on it. Wow. Wow. I mean, I think it's definitely unfortunate that, that you lost someone that was a mentor and a best friend. But, you know, if we want to look at it in comparison to where you are right now, I would say September 24th of last, you know, you know, you pretty much found your new best friend. Right. (laughs) So I want you to kind of talk about Samantha for a minute. I mean, obviously, she's a part of this equation. She's a part of your journey. And both of you kind of fall into the space of media to a certain extent. So I want to talk about how does that work for you guys? Yeah. Um, Wow. You did some serious research. This is like this is like uh, some FBI research you've done here. Um, No, I'm very I'm very proud of my now wife, Samantha, Um, we met and it was very interesting. In the world of business, you get so caught up and that's all you think about, right? You know this, I know this, that just becomes a part of your life that sometimes you stray stray away from a lot of things that ground you, things that you forget make you true to who you are. And when I met Samantha, one of the first things she said to me was, oh, in a joking way, you're just one of those slumlords. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nobody calls me a slumlord. You don't even know me. And what it came down to is that she genuinely didn't really care much about what I did for work or in my business. Hmm. She cared more about who I was. And so on our first date, we talked a lot about watching football. I'm a big sports guy and she loves watching football. So we talked a lot about sports. We talked a lot about family. We talked a lot about camping, which was something I hadn't done in a lot of years. And she brought back... um, a lot of warmth to my heart that I had kind of gotten rid of. And so as we continued to spend time together, she really grounded me. I found it safe to go hang out with her. Business was getting hard and challenging. And I just want to go hang out and talk to Samantha because it made me feel so grounded to who I was. And it was after we, uh, you know, we started dating and we went on our first camping trip. And this was in my vows that I shared with her on our wedding day um, was that it was our first camping trip where I knew that she was like the rock for me. She was that safe grounding space that allowed me to feel so good. So that's the the amazing thing that I've loved to learn about my wife now is that she does not really care so much about what I do in business. My number one supporter, she's at every finish line for any race that I do or any crazy thing I decide to do. She believes 100% in what I'm creating, but she won't let me forget what our core values are as a family which is getting out in nature, going and serving others, being happy that the business isn't what our core values are about, but it allows us to be more in perspective to what we want to create in our lives. And so we do a lot of camping. We make sure we spend time with our family and we do a lot of those things. So she's been a huge component to getting me back to the person I love and am proud to be. She also is in media. And so uh, she runs... (coughs) a team. Uh, The easiest way to say it is when you listen to the radio or the TVs and you hear about the giveaways they're giving away and the products they're doing, they're live on locations and stuff. She manages the whole team for that. So what talent is going to go speak? What products are they giving away? The brand partnerships they put together. And uh, she graciously gives me some advice on uh, go big to give big and how we're branding. Funny enough that you said this, just today I posted something on Instagram and she sent me a message and was like, hey, do you want a little bit of advice on this? Because I think you can do a lot better than what's on there. So uh, although she's not directly attached to the business and not helping me run it, um, she's such a great third party, again, non-entrepreneur to give me feedback on things that she just sees from her eyes. So it's been a very fun dynamic to be able to talk a little bit of business but not let it consume our lives and stay core true value to who we are. Hmm. Wow. It's definitely, I mean, interesting. I, I think like opposites definitely attract, but opposites with, with like similar polarities. And that's kind of what you found. You found an opposite, but you found someone that can speak your, your language as well, which makes what you do so much more impactful. So, I mean, talking about general impact, talking about education and the fact that, you know, you, you're with your best friend and she gives you insight. You lost a best friend that was giving you insight on this journey between both these best friends. There had to have been a lot of education, like you said. So I want you to kind of talk to the listeners and make a recommendation for a book that someone should read if they're on that journey, on that upward climb. Ah. Uh. There's so many of my favorite books. I want to give one more quick story of how another best friend played something in my life. And it'll tie kind of into this. I went on a a self-development retreat and 
as I was going through a lot of the stuff. And one of the things they told me to do is an exercise. And they told me to write out your five happiest moments in life. Not like, oh, I got married, so it had to be. But like, like true core to yourself. What were your happiest moments? And a lot of my happiest moments were fishing with one of my best friends. And um, we were very close. And he was just about to have twin girls. And I was at this event and I think two of my five happiest moments in my life were fishing with this guy. And so I said, you know what, coming back, what human do I want to be where if I can have these happiest moments by just driving 30 minutes and hanging out with my best friend, and he's just about to have twin girls, what can I do? So I made a commitment from that day that every single month I would go see him and his girls. makes me emotional. God. And, um, and one of the things that we did was that I said, well, what if we bought a rental house together? This is as I was building my business. And he was like, yeah, I don't really know anything about buying rental houses, but you do. So I've got an extra cash. Why don't we buy a house? So we actually bought a house together and we used the cash flow from that house to pay for us to go fishing every single month. And that is how we were able to build on our friendship, stay close, but has kept us together. And um, every single month I've gone and seen him and his girls. They're four now. So we've owned that rental property for four and a half years. And uh, it has been one of the key components to keeping my friendship. He doesn't, he's not an entrepreneur. He's not a business guy. He's not in that space. He cares more about me, my business, my life, everything. But it was that rental property and that decision to realize that if some of my happiest moments were with this guy and we lived 30 minutes away from each other, why wouldn't I want that every single month? So just on that concept of friends, and philosophies of life and stuff. That's where it is. Um, so there. So so sorry for for ignoring the question you had. I just wanted to share that principle because I don't share that on many podcasts and you kind of brought that out in me uh, on that way. Yeah, yeah. So before you even get into the books, I think, yeah. like you brought up fishing, right? And I want, I want to kind of talk about like, like cause if I remember correctly, there was a, a post or even like a, a image folder and one year accounts back in May of 2013 and you were fishing for salmon. So again, like this current theme of fishing, 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 is that something that you kind of got from like your forefathers? Like why is fishing such a connecting factor for you? Yeah, uh, my dad loved fishing. My grandpa ran a fishing charter company. And it was, uh, again, we go back to these like, core grounding moments. Going fishing is one of the best memories I have of being able to check out completely. Business consumed my life. When I say consumed it, it consumed it. And the, the, the moments that I have of being relaxed are camping and fishing, mm -hmm. right? That's where I'm grounded. And Richard, my, my best friend, would always tell me, bro, I got to get you out fishing because you have so much on the go and it's our space. So when we go fishing, it's just two dudes sitting on a boat, chatting about life. And you say anything, you do anything, nobody hears you. And it's just like this pure, like, like sanctuary. It is the safest, most sacred space. So Richard knows more things than anybody ever will because they've been set on that boat that doesn't leave the boat. So fishing's always been like a, a thing that allows me to just ground myself. I love it. It's relaxing. Again, we go to the ADHD. When you're fishing, you're always on in some ways. There's a lot of sitting doing nothing, but on days where it's crazy. You're driving the boat, you're navigating the seas, you're fishing, you're doing a lot of stuff. So a lot of stimulation inside of it. So fishing's been great for me in that space. And it's just been one of the core things that I've found to help me relax and ground myself in a lot of chaos. Wow. Wow. So hitting that switch back in time, yeah. right? What books would you recommend? And again, you can select yeah. maybe one or two books. Again, because I think a listener that's listening to you, they, they hear your energy, they, they hear your positivity. But obviously, that is part of learning what you're doing, why you're doing and how you're doing it. Yeah. Um, some books now that I've read that I would recommend to anyone listening. Um, I'm going to start with one that's called The 24-Hour Walk by mm -hmm. Colin O'Brady. And he talks about completely checking out, putting your phone down and walking for 24 hours. Wow. Actually, it might, even, it might be the 12 hour walk. And he talked about walking for 12 hours, sorry. And um, it's called the 12 hour walk. And he talked about walking for 12 hours, but putting everything away and just being present to the universe that you're walking in. You notice so many things when you don't have your phone on you and you get kind of this delusional state after a few hours where you're like, I got to think about something. He said, you notice how more vibrant everything is and, and stuff like that. Colin O'Brady is one of uh, the co-founders of 29029, the event that I did with Jesse Itzler. They both co-founded it. And he's done some of the most um, <clears throat> crazy stuff in the world, climbing Everest and being the first person to go across Antarctica. But the principles in the books he talks a lot about 
are a lot of what I applied to my life today of using physical fitness to attach to your business. So the 12 hour walk by Colin O'Brady, and it's all about just the principles of checking out and things like that. Absolutely amazing book. The, the second one I like to recommend living with a seal by Jesse Itzler. It's one of the funnest books I've listened to on the business side of things. Jesse does a very good job of not just being a boring business book, but if you know David Goggins, uh, he actually had David Goggins come live with him for 30 days. And he shares all these stories of living with a seal. And it's just absolutely hilarious that he makes him start doing like uh, a burpee uh, test in the middle right before one of his meetings. And just again, the philosophies that we're capable of a lot more when you're sitting here like, oh, I've got so many big meetings today. I don't have time to go for a run. No, you have time to go for a run. You're just choosing not to. So that's that. And my, I got to give a shout out to the the, the classic all-time favorite, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm-hmm. I mean, anyone who hasn't read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that is the first book I ever read in my life. I, I hated reading. I Again, a lot of those ADHD principles didn't allow me to become a good reader until I learned how to read with it. Um, but Rich Dad, Poor Dad was the first book I ever read where I learned about assets and liabilities and how you need to buy assets to pay for your liabilities, which is why I bought my rental property to pay for our fishing because we couldn't afford to go fishing every week oh. or every month. But when we bought that rental property, the cash flow paid for us to go fishing. And all of a sudden we had no excuse not to go because we had the money and we wanted to create the time to make it happen. So Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, got to be one of the all-time classics. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, with that, the listeners listening, and, and again, I think the all-time classic, there, there's always two sides to, to a coin, right? I want you to kind of talk about like words of wisdom for someone that's hearing your journey that maybe wants to embark on what you're doing. What tips do you have for them to kind of help them overcome the hurdles that they're going to present? And in that, how do they then give back more in that process? Yeah. One of my favorite things to teach people is just how to bet on themselves. I think so many people in this world are so scared to take risks on themselves. But when you truly know what you're capable of and what your worth is, and you bet on yourself and you believe in yourself, you can do so many things in this world. And I learned that when I bet on myself as an electrician and and just became the best there was at it and, and had these skills. But I learned it exceptionally when I um, took this risk on becoming a real estate investor. You know, I had I had my parents, I had my employers, I had my friends, every single one of them told me that this was a risky idea and that I was crazy to to go spend $15,000, $20,000 on a training program. But I knew in my core that I had so much more to give this world, that there was something in me that had a spark. And so by learning how to bet on myself, knowing that I was never going to give up, that I had the skill sets to do it, that it was something I wanted to do more than anything in this world, I just didn't let myself fail. And I think so many people um, allow doubt to creep in. They don't bet on themselves all in. And that's where doubt overtakes them. And that's why they don't succeed. I've never had any doubt. Anything I go into, I believe is going to be 100% and it's going to work. And that's why I believe I have so much success. Everything that I touch, because everything I touch, I believe I'm 100% capable of it. So that's the belief that I want to instill in so many people or or the thing I can give them is like betting on themselves that they actually can and capable of it and going all in and all in means no going back. It means that you are in and you believe that you're the best at what you can do and you'll go after it no matter what. Wow. So let's say someone that they're in a business and they're hearing you and they're motivated that they want to go bigger to give back more. How do they contact you? Where do you want to send them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my website is gobigtogetbig.com. My social medias are Randy Molland, R-A-N-D-Y-M-O-L-L-A-N-D, or Go Big to Get Big. You can find them anywhere. Anything that says Go Big to Get Big or Randy Molland, I'm uh, I'm the only Go Big to Give Give Bigger out there, and I'm the basically one of the only Randy Molland. So it's very easy to find me. Um, but I, I I truly want people to understand that principle to leave the audience with this is if you go and follow my social medias, you'll see everything is about not just you know making money, but using it to make an impact and do good in this world. And typically the people I've found that believe in those same core philosophies are genuinely people that want to connect and help you out for no reason. Make introductions. Guys like you and I, I say, we pass introductions back and forth with no expectations. Some months you might send me more than I send you. Some months I might send you more than you send me. It's not 50-50. It's just doing good in the world. We want to help each other, right? And so I found that people that want to add this philosophy into their business 
are genuinely just great humans that love connecting. And that's why my network has grown so fast. So if anyone on here believes in that principle, I'll spend the time of day to chat with anybody. I send a lot of Instagram voice memos when people send me messages, answering their questions, supporting them and helping them. I just love connecting with people that have the core value and philosophies of giving back. Because if I can teach them business principles to make more money, they're the ones that are going to go do good in the world. And that's how we're going to support the world of nonprofits so they don't need to raise money anymore. They're just funded by businesses. And why capitalism will actually die because capitalism to do good will actually take over. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, with that principle about capitalism dying and doing good, taking over, if you had an opportunity, right? to spend 24 hours with anyone. And this person could be someone that you've met, never met, someone that died before you even were in existence, someone that you pretty much look up to. Who would that person be and why? Yeah, uh, at this, it changes quite often, uh, frequently. I, I go through a lot of who inspires me and who doesn't inspire me. At this point in my life today, it's a no-brainer that I'd have to go with Jesse Itzler. That man is, he is building something I've never seen before by marrying business, by marrying athletes, by creating the best community of humans you've ever seen. And uh, he's the best keynote speaker. I've watched his same keynote uh, probably in person four or five times, online a dozen times. And uh, just the, the philosophies that that guy lives by are how I want to live my life to a T. So uh, I got to say Jesse Itzler right now is the guy. And I've, I've, I've been fortunate enough to spend some time with him and chat with him and stuff. Um, so to get 24 hours alone with him, yeah. uh, he would be able to take go big to get big and scale it, grow it, do some amazing things, but also give me the core values and principles of life that I want to do while I scale it and grow it. Mm. So, I mean, with that, I mean, obviously you had dozens of achievements, right? You overcame a lot throughout your life. If you can select which one, which will be the primary largest, the most significant achievement to you to date? There's a lot and, and a lot all have the same things to me. Uh, I'm going to give you two if I can. One of them is the go big to get big principle. I think that's going to become a, a global movement, which is going to change a lot of uh, the way businesses operate and businesses done. I think we're just on the verge of seeing this come as a trend. So go big to get big coming up with that principle, um, I think is one of my favorite accomplishments. Uh, understanding that the bigger we went, the more we can give, we need to go big to get big. I'll never forget the moment that I came up with that word. Cause that was like, it hit me and it was like, boom, that's it. Um, the second one is honestly just the influence I've had on my friends and family, uh, to take real estate investing, convince one of my friends to buy a rental property with me that we've now made hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity in we've made, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in cash flow, which you've used to fund our lives. He's now gone on to buy another rental property with his dad and helped basically fund his retirement um, at 30 years old. He's basically financially free at mid thirties. And he just works Monday to Friday, nine to five. He's nothing. He's not an entrepreneur. That's moments like that. And my parents helping them sell their house, pull the equity out, invest it in real estate, start making cash flow, and start building their retirement differently than they've uh, been able to do before uh, is another one of my favorite accomplishments because they would have never gotten out of the rat race and they would have to work until they're 70 or later to get to retirement. At, uh, at their ages of 55, I was able to start helping them recognize that they weren't going to be able to retire and start living a different life. And it came from a lot of work, six years of grinding them. But finally, they're investing in real estate and building their own retirement, which is going to help them speed up their retirement and live a lot more comfortably. So that's another accomplishment that I'm very, very proud of, is not just how much money I'm making, but the people around me that I'm influencing to do the same things with. Wow. Wow. I think this is definitely a, a powerful episode. And the way I like to close out my, my episodes generally is, first of all, thanking you for being here, but also giving you opportunity because you're a fellow podcaster to host my podcast. So Boston Cage is now your show. I'm now your guest. Do you have any questions that you would like to ask me? Uh, I, I would love to ask you the question that I end all my podcasts with essay. I got to ask you, man, do you believe that money can buy you happiness? I, I think to your point, I think money can help you orchestrate what happiness, whatever that is to you. So I think the answer, the simplest answer is yes, but it, it's, it's based upon what you do with the money. Absolutely. I got one more question for you then, because that one was set up because I framed it for you earlier. Mm -hmm. This one, you probably haven't even, you've maybe listened to my show and heard it, but if you had to choose between 
donating $1 million, a cold hard check for a million dollars, or spending a week physically helping others, what would you choose to do? Donate the million. Yeah, why? Because I mean, like that money, that million dollars can go way more. And I can put it like this. If you're saying I'm donating 24 hours of my personal time, with that million dollars, I could donate 24 hours of dozens of people's personal time, right? So I can execute way more with that capital than I can do as an individual. Beautiful answer, man. I love it. And that question's probably 50-50 on people. Some people just want to serve and help. Other people see the value of donating the million dollars because it can go exponentially further. So those yeah. are some great answers, bro. And I appreciate you answering them. Well, again, I think I appreciate you being here today. And I think if nothing else, if the listener, if you're thinking about something, and it's kind of thing that I believe in as well, too, if you're thinking too small, it's evident that you're thinking too small because you're not to where you want to be. So you're going to have to essentially think a lot bigger than what you're doing right now. And part of thinking bigger is being able to figure out how do you give back more. Absolutely. Great. With that, S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762-233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss Uncaged are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.